We're going to get back into Mark. We're getting near the end. Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 43 to 52 tonight. Just pray. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that you are the one that gives us understanding in your word. I ask you'll open our understanding, Lord, and open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see you in your glory and your majesty, Lord, for who you are. And I thank you that you'll do that for us tonight in Jesus' name. We look in verse 43 of Mark 14, and it says, And immediately, talking about Jesus, while he yet spake, came Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, or clubs, from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token or a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scripture must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. You know, if you look at the Gospels, from 30,000 feet, from a bird's eye view, and ask yourself the question, why did Jesus primarily come from heaven to earth? Why did he primarily come? Was it to demonstrate love? Was it to show compassion? Was it to help the poor? He was a carpenter. Did he come to show us how to remodel a house, how to build a better table? I mean, was that his purpose? He repeatedly answered the question through the Gospels. And his primary purpose for coming was to die. That was his primary purpose. He did teach. He did show compassion. He did heal the sick, demonstrated love, and all of that is important. I'm not downplaying any of that. But the primary reason we need to see was that he came to die. That is not really what's presented now really pretty much throughout Christendom. It's kind of downplayed. But if he hadn't and suffered and died on our behalf on the cross, None of the rest would have mattered, and it wouldn't have been available to us, wouldn't be available to us now. None of it would have. We've seen going through Mark, in Mark and Matthew, if you look through both Gospels, the midway point of Mark is Mark 8. It's literally the midway point of 16 chapters. In Matthew, we have in Matthew 16, in both places, that's where Peter makes his great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells Peter, he says, man, that is great. I'm glad you saw that. For right now, he said, I don't want you telling anybody else that. Just keep it quiet. But I want to add something to that. And what he says is, I must. I'm running into that word a lot. It is a Greek word, D-E-I in Greek. Okay, And it means it is necessary. Because we talked about that. He said, I must go through Samaria. Well, he told Peter, I must absolutely necessary. I must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. He's saying, I must do those things. I must die, or basically nothing else matters. I mean, that's important that we understand that. You have no hope. I have no hope if he didn't die. From there on out, he would just keep repeating that to him, and he didn't understand it. He said it to them many times. They really didn't understand it until after the resurrection. The death of Jesus Christ should never be downplayed in any way. Mark is 16 chapters long, okay? We're getting near the end of it. But basically from chapter 11 to chapter 16, those five chapters, roughly one-third of that gospel, is given to the last week of his life. And it climaxes in the crucifixion. That is like the major thing, the climaxing part of the book, his death. Everything in Christianity centers not around fellowship, doesn't center on sharing, sharing goods, helping each other out. Christianity doesn't center on worship. Everything in the Bible centers on his death, and it needs to stay centered that way. And it's most clearly seen in the Gospel of John. 
really see that clearly because John starts off, he doesn't get past chapter 1. His death is the primary thing. Listen to what it says in John at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching while he's baptizing people. And he doesn't say, here is love, here is truth, here is power. He could have said any of those things and it would have been true of the Lord Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? But you know what he says? He points this out to all the crowds that are coming there. Behold, he's pointing out, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, he's pointing to his death right there, right at the beginning of his ministry. The dying lamb. That's what's significant about Jesus, that he came. And you move into chapter 2, Jesus comes there and he clears out the temple. He says, you guys are making this a den of thieves. Clears them all out, drives out the animals. And they come to him and they're like, what sign do you show us that you have this kind of authority? And you know what he talks about next? His death and resurrection. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Talking about his death again. Then chapter 3 of John, after speaking to Nicodemus, another must, you must, it's the same word, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. You'll never see it without being born again. But then he goes on to explain to Nicodemus how that is possible. And he says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, there's the word again, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. A must for the dying Israelites in the wilderness was what? That serpent, they were dying of those bites, weren't they? That serpent had to be lifted up, he said. And they had to look at it. If they wanted to deliver, they were going to die. And he's like, look, you've been bitten by the serpent. You have his nature. You are dying. And he's telling Nicodemus, the son of man must be lifted up like that serpent. Must be, or you will die in your sins. That's the only remedy. What was the only remedy out in the wilderness? There was no other remedy for those Israelites, was there? And he's saying, I'm the only remedy, and it's my death. Taking a point there. We're asking the question, why did Jesus primarily come down from heaven to earth? Moving on, we'll listen to what he said in John 6.51. He says, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. I'm the living bread. I came down from heaven. There he's almost answering the question. He says, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And he says this, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John chapter 6 is all about the Jews were consumed with getting bread. They liked the bread he gave them. They wanted more of it. They wanted him to be the bread king, supply all their needs. And he says, wait a minute, I'm here to give my flesh. That's the bread you really need. And it's talking about the crucifixion, the cross of Calvary. saying, you must eat that if you want to live forever. The bread is my flesh. And Sunday when we have communion, what do we say communion? He says, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. I mean, it is that critical and that central, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Everybody likes to sing about the Lord being the good shepherd and watching out for us, his flock. Well, he said this, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So by giving his life on the cross, that is how the shepherd shows his love for the sheep, isn't it? Primarily, that's how he does it. That's what he's saying. And who's he giving his life for? Who's he dying for? I, he has to give his life not for himself, not for anyone else, for us. That four means in our place. The shepherd, because of his care for us, his care for you, his care for me, he had to take our place. Why? Because we, the sheep, had all what? Gone astray, gone to do our own thing. He's saying, I had to come as the high priest and die on your behalf, offer my body as a sacrifice. And that's the way it is. Caiaphas, John 11, said this. He says, it's expedient for us. It's necessary. He didn't know what he was prophesying as the high priest that year. But it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and thus the whole nation perish not. I'm saying that is the way it is all through the Bible. 
from Genesis to Revelation, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central theme. It is. And to make it anything else is missing the point. You have it right in the garden. The animals had to be sacrificed for Adam and Eve, didn't it, to make coats for them. Abraham, the type, has to sacrifice up Isaac on the altar. Exodus, the only way those people could be redeemed, the only way they could have healing, deliverance, all the blessings had to happen at the beginning, and it had to happen how? Hundreds of thousands of innocent, pure lambs God had to provide so that they could have their throats slit, the blood caught, and that blood applied to the doorstep. If that hadn't happened, if that death hadn't happened of all of those lambs which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, that would have been the end of them, wouldn't it? They would have died right with the Egyptians. And then you have Leviticus all those animal sacrifices, the only way that man could stay in fellowship with God was through that sacrificial system that God instituted. And we have Leviticus 16, the great day of atonement, pointing to that lamb, the lamb of God. And that's when Israel could know, hey, we're listening for the bells on that priest. We're going to be able to survive with this holy God, stay in fellowship with him. And that had to happen every year. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, the world today is no different than the world of the Bible in this sense because God has never changed and his law has never changed and man made us, made in God's image, we are still required to do what? Keep the law perfectly if we want to have fellowship with him. And guess what? None of us has and none of us can. We needed that dying lamb on the cross to pay the price for the fact that we couldn't. Because we're sick. We are sick, guilty, and condemned. We're back to John 3.16, John 3.15, actually 14 and 15. The only remedy we have is the fact that he suffered and died. That's what we're going to be talking about through this end of Mark. Died for our sins, like we talked about last week. That he drank the wrath of God that was coming our way, didn't he? He drank that cup. His substitutionary death for our sins. It's a critical doctrine or teaching that we have to know. Because sometimes we can think we're good people. Or we can talk about somebody that's not a Christian. Oh, he's a good person. Well, if you want to know how good you are or this other person or anyone you want to think of, look at the cross. That's God's opinion of any man and his goodness is right there. When you see the Son of God, all of what we've seen he's suffered so far and will suffer throughout his passion week. That shows you God's opinion of sins. He doesn't shrink back from that price he has to pay. We talked last week, didn't he? He sees that cup. The father presents it to him. He sees it in horror. And he's crying out to his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. I know that. Please take this cup from me. And we could be thankful that he did not put a period there. That's the cup that was coming our way. It really was. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. We'll talk about it again, but he was in such agony and such stress and distress that angels had to come. The creation had to come and strengthen the creator, the one that had created them. And he's sweating blood clots on the ground. It was hitting me today. I'm saying that should bring you to tears when you see what he was willing to do for your sins and mine. It really should. That is no small thing. God loved us that much. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the fervent prayer and the agonizing tears that he shed, he finally settles it, doesn't he? That he is going through. He's able to get it settled. Sets his face like a flint, the Bible says. Rises up, finds his disciples. He comes back, and here they are. And this is us, sleeping for the third time. Third time he finds them sleep. Couldn't even watch an hour. <laughs> Too many times, that's us. Look what it says back in chapter 14 and verse 41. And when he cometh the third time and saith unto them, well, sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. He says, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up and let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And it says that while he's still speaking, that a great multitude comes to arrest him. Look what it says in verses 43 on down. It says, and immediately while he yet spake, while he's speaking, came Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
And he that betrayed him had given them a token or a sign saying, whoever I shall kiss the same as he take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, master, master, and kissed him. So you combine all the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ and it talks about that a great crowd comes to arrest him and they come with lanterns and torches and weapons, swords and clubs. The clubs would have been for the guard, the people that guarded the high priest and the elders. They weren't allowed to have swords. The swords would have been for the Roman soldiers. This just a short double-edged sword. It wasn't this big long thing you pull out like that. Peter didn't have one like that. It was just about that long. You hold in your hand. For hand-to-hand combat, that's the swords that those guys would have had. The Gospel of John tells us that there was Roman soldiers there. That's how we know that. A detachment of soldiers, it says. And it would have been anywhere. So when it talks about a great multitude and a mob, this wasn't like about 20, 30 people. There were literally, they're guessing, a low end would have been four to 600 Roman soldiers were there. That's why it says a great multitude. There wouldn't have been as many as of the guards from the priest or whatever. But they sent part of a Roman cohort there to arrest him. One man. And what had he ever done that they all had to come out like in that kind of force to arrest him? They did the same thing with Paul when they thought Paul was in danger and they said they sent a cohort to escort him. And Jesus asked them that. He asked, what in the world is going on here? Why did you have to do this? Look what it says. Verse 48, he says, are you come out as against a thief? Is that, is that the way I was with swords and with clubs to take me? He's like, what did I ever do to deserve this? Because he says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching. Well, you didn't take me then. But he says, yet the scriptures have to be fulfilled, is what he says. Who was the one that was leading the group? Judas. Luke tells us it says that he was before them. Apparently, there's Judas coming up, and there was a space between him and this great crowd that came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. He's acting like he's not part of the group somehow. He's just coming to Jesus to warn him, I guess. I don't know. But he's not like right with them when he shows up. He's got that little bit of space there. Since none of the arresting soldiers, they wouldn't have known who Jesus was. They didn't care. They didn't know. Judas gave him a sign or a token, and it's in verse 44. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, whoever I kiss. That's the one. Now, you think about it. If Judas would have had any integrity about him at all, couldn't he have just said, look, I'll I'll just point him out to you. That's all he had to do. He didn't have to go that low, did he? to say I'm going to betray him in a kiss. But that just goes to show you how low human nature can go. How much of a snake you can be, he's going to give him a kiss. When you put all the different accounts together, so you have Matthew 26, Luke 22, John 18, what we're reading here in Mark 4, you put them all together and Judas comes up and the first thing he says is, Hail Master, greetings Rabbi is what he said. It's the Greek word kare, which literally the word means rejoice. That's what he comes up and says to him. It's the first word that Jesus says after he raises from the dead. The first word he spoke to any of the disciples, he says, all hail, all rejoice, because here I am. And that's what Judas comes up and says to Jesus when he greets him. In Greece, it's still the common greeting when you meet a friend today. You'll say kare. That's what they'll say. He's like, good to see you, Master, in our vernacular. Like, how you doing? Good to see you. How are you today, Master? And why couldn't he have just said, Jesus, I am here to point out who you are, to have you arrested, to turn you in. It's all over. He didn't do that, did he? Instead, he's trying to carry on. He acts like nothing's up. He's got this big smile on his face probably, you know. Rejoice, Master. This is the day that the Lord has made. That's the game he's playing. And then it says that he kissed Jesus, the account goes on to say. And that kiss wasn't just a peck on the cheek. Because there is a word for a kiss, phileo. But this is kata phileo. It's intensified. It means to kiss repeatedly or warmly or affectionately. It's a kiss of genuine devotion. And that's the kind of kiss he gave him. He's doing that like it's genuine devotion, but yet the whole time his heart is what? It's black. Despite the fact that Jesus knew all that Jesus has done. 
despite the fact of all of that and his betrayal, he didn't, still didn't speak harshly to him, did he? He spoke kindly to Judas. And he says, friend, why have you come? That's what he says to him after Jesus comes up and kisses him like that. And there's a lot of these commentators, they think that Jesus was insincere by calling Judas his friend. But actually, I think the word that was used for friend, it's really in a way, it's a mild rebuke. He's kind of mildly rebuking him in that way. It's hetere, hetere, and it can mean friend, comrade, companion, or partner. And I think Jesus is saying this. This would have had to convict Judas, I would think. Had to do something to him. He's saying, my companion, Hatari, my friend, why have you come? I thought you loved me, and I thought we were partners together in all that we're doing. That's what he would have heard. I don't think Jesus was insincere when he said that. I really don't. I think he put in practice what he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies. I think he's putting into practice what the Bible teaches in Ezekiel 16. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus has already said he knows that Judas is going to perish, but I don't still, I don't think he had any delight in that at all. That's not God's heart. He doesn't delight, even though some do perish, he has no pleasure in it. And Luke tells us that Jesus goes on to ask him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Every word that he spoke there would have had to cut Judas. Because you think about it, he knows what he's doing. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows what he's just done to the Lord that was his companion. And he calls him by his first name. Could you imagine if you decided to betray the Lord and you're face to face with him and he calls you Caleb? You're going to betray me with the kiss? What would that do to you on the inside? That had had to have cut him big time. And then he asked him, are you, Judas, are you? And the emphasis is on you, you of all people. Are you really going to do this to me? Is what he would have been saying. And then he's asking him, do you realize the enormity of what you're doing? Judas, are you betraying, not just anybody, the son of man? Not just somebody you met at the marketplace. But the Son of Man, you've seen my miracles. You've done miracles in my name. You've heard my teaching. And he's saying, and you are betraying me? I mean, he had to know Jesus just wasn't an ordinary person, that God was with him. And the last thing he says, look at how much of a hypocrite you are, Judas. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? Are you going to do that with a kiss? A kiss? Because a kiss back in that day, it represented a renewal of a pledge of loyalty between two people. Renewal of a pledge of loyalty. But here, what this kiss is, what? Just the opposite. It's a dagger in his back, isn't it? And that's what Joab did to Amasa in 2 Samuel 20. And David had put Amasa in charge of his army. And Joab didn't like it because he'd been the one in charge. And Joab came to Amasa just like Judas came to Jesus. He came up to Amasa like he's his friend. And he said this, are you in health, my brother? I'm sure he said that with a smile. And it says, and Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him therewith in the fifth rib and shed out his bowels to the ground and struck him not again. That's all it took. Amasa died. But that's what Joab did. That's what Judas did, didn't he? Came up to Jesus and he stuck him, maybe not with the literal sword, but that's the beginning of the passion. That's the beginning of the cup that he had to drink. The soldiers, after Judas identified Jesus, they eventually laid their hands on Jesus and took him away. You picture that, what's going on there with the Lord. I mean, you watch these police shows. I watch them all the time. Every now and then you'll see one and you get interested in a second. But you'll see they catch these shady looking characters doing whatever. (laughs) And next thing you know, what are they doing? They're handcuffing them and they're putting them in that squad car and taking them. away. That's a humiliating thing, isn't it? It just is. You picture the Lord Jesus. That's what's basically being done to him by these soldiers. They're binding him up. 
They bind his hands. They lay their hands on him. I'm sure they weren't real nice about it. And here's the one that had laid hands on how many people and healed them. And he's getting hands laid on him. And you think about it, when Peter cut off that servant's ear, the last thing he did, I'm sure, before his hands were bound, was he reached up and used his hands to heal that man. And then they take him off like a common criminal. That's what's going on here. So when they do that, like I said, Peter takes his sword and begins to fight. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, you know, why did you come out this way? I never did anything. He was nonviolent the whole time he was here. He wasn't like these other insurrectionists at the time. But when that happened, what happened to his disciples? It says that they all forsook him and fled, didn't they? All of them. And guess what you have there? Here's Jesus standing all by himself, alone. No friends. No friends at all. That's how he stood there. The passion has begun. Drinking the cup. I've never had an experience where I just didn't have any friends in my life, period. But I mean, people have. People have been betrayed in big time ways. I've been betrayed through the years, and that's not nice. But you could imagine that all of your friends have left you, every one of them that had pledged their loyalty. No one is staying in there, and you're in the midst of an angry crowd like he was that he had to go through. Paul had to deal with that. He did. If you would, put something there and turn back to 2 Timothy. Paul wrote 2 Timothy towards the end of his life. It's the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy 4. So you think Paul's having to deal with this as an old man. Look what it says, 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 14. And it says there, And Alexander the coppersmith, he said, did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also, for he has greatly withstood our words. In verse 16 it says, At my first answer, how many stood with him? None, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me, and I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Because I'm telling you, that had to be hard for Paul. Except he's able to add something here that Jesus couldn't. What does it say in verse 17? Notwithstanding, he did have somebody with him, didn't he? It says, the Lord stood with me, and not only that, the Lord strengthened me. That by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered... He said, out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. And we all said, Amen with him. How was Paul able to write verse 17? How was he able to write that? Because Jesus, like we talked about, he fully knew what Paul was experiencing, didn't he? And he's able to come and give him the comfort and the strength that he knew somebody that had just been betrayed. All men had left him alone. He knew what Paul was going through. And I guarantee you, Paul was crying out for grace and help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. And the Lord came and gave him that. That is what he'll do for us. Anytime that we feel forsaken or abandoned. Because a lot of times that's not the kind of thing you talk about with people, is it? But you sure can feel that way a lot of times, can't you? Don't think that in these last days that that isn't going to happen. You know, I was writing this message, reminded me there's a video. It's a good video, nothing wrong with it. It's called God's Outlaw. I think you can watch it on YouTube for free, but it's done a few years back. But it's fairly well done, and it's done on the life of William Tyndale. And he's largely responsible for the New Testament that we have today, actually. And he was betrayed big time. So he'd gone to Antwerp, and it was a city that the English were after him and the Roman Catholics were after him. He went to Antwerp, and he could pretty much do his work on his New Testament and other things. He was able to do that there without being harassed. And he had friends that were helping him out, and they were helping him evade the authorities. He was working on the Old Testament. He'd finished the New Testament. And it ends up, just a little aside here, when they put together a hundred years later, a century later, the King James Bible... Eight times out of ten, when they would come to a word, they'd be like, we can't do any better than what Tyndale did. And they would use it. He coined a lot of words and phrases that are in our New Testament. Just a great man. But during those years, he would give himself to good works, he said. And he said, this is why, he says, my part be not in Christ if mine heart do not follow and live according as I teach. So on Mondays, 
He would go and visit other refugees from England that were living in the area he was in. On Sundays, he would walk the streets and he'd seek to minister to those that were poor. And he would dine in merchants' homes. He'd read the Bible with them, read scriptures and all that. And the rest of the time he'd spend on doing his translating. He was amongst people, tried to help the poor any way he can. He had a good heart. And it left him open and vulnerable. Nobody knows for sure who paid this man, but there was a man from England named Henry Phillips. And he was just a common thief. Stole from his dad, gambled himself into poverty. And they're like, look, you can either do jail time or you can go and get this man Tyndale for us. And so what he did is he acted like he's Tyndale's best friend. Started eating with him all the time and came so much into his confidence that Tyndale actually let him read his papers and manuscripts and works he was doing. Hardly anybody was privileged to do that. So that's how much favor he had gained with him. Next thing you know, he lures him away, gets him away from his friends and his home where he was, Phillips does, and sets him right into a trap. And if you watch the movie, (laughs) you look where those two, their eyes meet. And Tyndale is just pained that this guy, because all of a sudden his true nature comes out, Phillips, just like Judas. Think what Jesus was looking at. He's looking at the devil. It'd be like looking at Charlie Manson, telling you he's your best friend. And that's what happened, though. So Tyndale was taken away. They, those soldiers arrested him, took him away, stuck him 500 days up in this castle. And eventually they killed him and burned him at the stake. And the last words he had, the famous words were, may the Lord open the king of England's eyes. And he did. That prayer was answered. That was his last prayer. But it's just a great man, Amen. William Tyndale. He was betrayed. He wrote something. He's like, you know, we get in these trials like this. We need to take comfort from God that his hand is on us and he will help us. And I'm sure he had to deal with not having hatred and resentment against that man. So we have to ask ourselves, based on what we've looked at so far, two questions. What would it take for you to betray the Lord? What would it take? Could that happen? What would be too much to handle? Do you have a price? Because that's something that we should get settled right away, isn't it? Isn't that kind of the entry requirement? If you would, turn to Luke 14. I want to just read two places. One about this point, Luke 14. This has got to be our starting point, but not only a starting point for being a Christian, but it needs to remain our point. 1426, Jesus said this. He says, if any man come to me, it's coming to a person, to him, and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, and his own life also. He says he cannot, impossible, to be my disciple. And why is that? Because if you're going to put family and fellowship and friends ahead of him, You're going to have problems. You're going to get snared. If they're following the Lord, then no problem. But that's what he says. And he says, and whosoever, verse 27, does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it. Lest happily after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, Well, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage and desires conditions of peace. Likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has He cannot be my disciple. What happened to Judas? He hadn't gotten rid of that covetousness that was in him, that lust for money, fame, and power. We've got to be willing to give up anything that comes in the way between us and the Lord. And I would say us and his word. Amen? I just don't know how much that is necessarily still the case. And the next question we have to look at, Judas got tripped up, didn't he? The next question is, how will we handle things when people betray us? When all forsake us, how are we going to handle things? And the pressure's on. And for that one, if you turn over to Matthew 10, I could just read that. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, and brother shall deliver up the brother to what? To death. And the father, the child, the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them 
to be put to death. And you're like, man, I wish you quit reading this stuff. I'm sorry. It's there. And that's what we're dealing with tonight in Mark 14. And he goes on to say, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. But look what he says in verse 24. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household. In other words, it's going to happen. That's what he's saying. But he goes on to say, verse 26, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. And what I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach you upon the housetops. Verse 28, and he says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, he says, him will I confess also before my father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household." He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it. But he that loses his life for my sake shall what? I mean, man, we'll just leave it at that. We'll just leave the commentary. We'll just leave it at what we just read. Those are sobering words, aren't they? But that's the thing. How are we going to handle persecution? How are we going to handle when someone in your own family is going a different direction and there's pressure there to go that way and to compromise as a result? What are we going to do? Truth and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truth, has got to be number one in our lives. Or we're going to be getting set up for the Antichrist because he will deceive those, it says, because they have received not the love of the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And part of that is I'm putting my family and my friends above the Lord. That's a problem. That can be a problem or whatever thing. The second thing about the arrest of Jesus I want to look at tonight, and that is that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, was in complete control throughout this entire ordeal. And if you look over in John 18, we're going to finish looking at that. John 18, as it's pretty clear there. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden into the which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus, oft times resorted thither with his disciples. And Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came thither with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am, that he was added. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. And then asked he them again, well, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I've told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it 
and smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, and that servant's name was Malchus. And then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword under thy sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? And then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. They left Jerusalem and crossed the book Kidron. Now, you think the brook Kidron, you think of these little, it's like a little nice little babbling brook. It wasn't that way. It actually was a dry wadi, they called it, just a dry bed. It only had water flowing in it during the rainy season, so you could easily cross there. And Jesus went there knowing full well, I'm saying he's in control. He knew full well that Jesus knew he went there and was going to be coming there, didn't he? He wasn't surprised by that at all. He wasn't avoiding trouble. That's what it says there in verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? So look at how he takes control of the situation. He asked them the question, doesn't he? Whom seek ye? And it's interesting. They don't tell him to shut up, do they? They don't tell him to shut up. Instead, they answer him. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And then he draws the only weapon that he needs. They're coming with all these swords and staves, you know, like they're going He takes out the only weapon he has and says what? I am. I am. Ego and me. That is the Greek for what Moses was told by the Lord from the burning bush. I am that I am. Ego and me. All the I am statements that are in the Gospel of John. And the power in that word coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, that I am, did what? Look what it says in verse 6. And as soon as he ascended to them, I am, ego and me, they went backward, it says, and fell to the ground. Think about who it is that's fallen backwards. It can't stand up there. You got all these people falling over. The power of the word of the Son of God, I am that I am. You got Judas. It talks about that Judas was out front and the ones that came. These are the people that think they're in control of this situation. And he's given that word to show them, no, you're not in control of anything. I am totally in control of what's going on here. One word from me and you people would all be destroyed. Didn't he say even then, I could pray to my father and he'd send down 10,000 legions of angels. Enough to wipe out all of Jerusalem. Wouldn't even take that many. Isn't that what he said? One little word. You know, that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the third verse says this, And though this world with evil filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And the last thing it says is, one little word shall fell him. And that's what we see here, the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. One word from him, and that crowd just falls back like a bunch of dominoes. No problem. And say, that should tell us of the power of the Word of God and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ over our enemies. Because He is the great I Am, isn't He? His Word has unlimited power. And that's all it takes is just one word from the lips of Jesus, doesn't it? To take care of any situation. The centurion, he came to him, he says, I'm a man of authority. I know when my word has authority, and I see your word has authority over sickness, demons, and the spiritual realm. And I'm just saying, just speak the word only. That's all I need from you, Jesus. He got it. And he said, and my servant shall be healed. And that's what we clearly see here. When we make the Lord Jesus Christ the center of our lives, and with His Holy Spirit within us, our words, when they're His words and He's anointing them, have the same power. Amen? Amen. Yeah, they do. <laughs> so just turn back a few chapters. We'll look at John 14 again. Won't hurt to reread that. John 14, 10, and Jesus says there, Believe you not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. What does he say? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me. He does the works. Through the words is what he's saying. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, to us, 
He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, what does Jesus say? I will do it. Isn't that what he says? That's the power in prayer and the power in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what he says. we we'll go back to John 18. Last thing I want to point out is that he's in control in another way. So look in verses 7 to 9. And then he asked them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I have told you I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, I have lost none. So he asked them the second time, who is it you're seeking? And they answer him the same thing, Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, I already told you that I am he, I am. Then he doesn't give them a polite request. He doesn't plead with them. He just says, wait, I'm the one you guys want, fellas. Could you please just let these other guys that are with me, they're not dangerous, they're kind of buffoons. Could you just let them go? He doesn't say that, does he? He commands them. When it says, let these go their way, it's an imperative. It's not a request. It's a command. Let these go. And the thing is, I'm saying, he's in control of this situation because the soldiers obey what he says, don't they? They had to. They're in awe of him, I think. So I think there was a certain majesty and presence about the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about it. I'd say if somebody just said I am and I get I feel like I just had a spiritual supernatural sledgehammer knock me back, I think I'd be in all of that person. But I think what we have here is just like earlier in John's gospel, when they sent those soldiers, the authorities, to go arrest Jesus, the chief priest, they sent him to go arrest him. And they come back, well, where is he? We you don't have him. Well, no, because what was their answer? Never a man spake like this man. There was something about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. He's controlling this whole situation, even though he's allowing himself to be apprehended, bound, taken away, eventually crucified. But in all of that, you think about the rest of the passion story. Whenever he's brought before anybody in authority, who's really in control of the situation? Even when he's brought before Caiaphas and the high priest, they're so frustrated with him because he won't cooperate with them. They get angry with him. And Pilate, when he comes before Pilate, Pilate is scared to death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His wife has a dream, have nothing to do with that righteous man. And then Jesus tells him he's the son of God. He says, you have no power over me unless it's given to you from above. And he says, I came here to reveal truth. And Pilate's like, I just want to get rid of this guy. I'm scared to death of him. Who's in control of that whole situation? Jesus clearly is. And even when he's suffering on the cross, he's still in control then. He tells John, there's your mother. Take care of her. There's your mother. Take care of her. He is in control to where he's forgiving all of those that have hurt him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He's in control of the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me. Today, you're with me in paradise. He's not a victim. It's all happening. Like it says, look what it says back. Uh, we're in chapter 18 because he says, all those which thou gavest me, I've left none because it had to be fulfilled. Verse 9, of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. So that word that he's given, he's concerned about his followers. It reminds you of the Exodus when the Lord says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he had to. He had to. And Jesus says, let my men go because they're not going to perish because they're going to be around to spread the gospel after I'm risen from the dead. That was the purpose for all of that in the resurrection. In conclusion, in the arrest of our Lord, we see the betrayal and the faithlessness, not only of Judas, but of all the disciples. In that sense, they represent the church, don't they? You know, we have to trust in the Lord and that by his grace, he is going to keep us and not trust in ourselves. 
that's kind of the point there. We need to watch and pray. We have to examine our heart. That's why we looked at Luke 14. We need to make sure that we said, I'm willing to forsake everything, Lord, that you ask me to, to be a faithful follower of you. We have to count the cost and keep the cost counted to make it to the end. That's what we have to do. But also, I mean, really this passion narrative to me, it's really more about the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing the way he carried himself, the majesty, and yet the humility. It's grace. The power of the Lord to me is seeing in the grace that he restrains his power. He doesn't have to have any of this. He doesn't have to put up with anything that's happening to him. But no matter who's doing it to him, he graciously restrains himself. You know, we can hear teaching. It doesn't have to be like, well, what what am I supposed to do with that? Sometimes it's just appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and his grace and his majesty and his love and how you see him carry himself. Because that's who this is all about, isn't it? And that's who we proclaim is him. When you see all of that, that should encourage us that he's in control. One word from him will take care of any situation. That should encourage us to want to trust and follow him with all of our hearts. And when you see that he, what he did on the cross, that should cause us to fall down and say, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Amen. Because he's worthy. Amen. All right, let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again for the word that you've given us, Lord. I ask that you'll give all of us hearts and by your grace, we know that you're praying for us, Lord, that our faith fail not. And we look to you and trust you, Lord, and seek and watch and pray, Lord, that we can remain faithful to you and that you'll give us the strength and grace to deal with whatever situations we have, Lord. And also, I ask you'll open our eyes we can have a greater love for you, that we can see you and your grace and your majesty and that you are the great I am and yet you were willing to allow yourself as the good shepherd to be crucified on our behalf and you willingly let yourself be abused and spit upon for our sake and you suffered and died and rose again and we thank you for that Lord. We ask that you'll ever keep that in front of us, that that will be the main thing that you came here mainly to die on our behalf for our sins, and for our unrighteousness. And we thank you so much for that. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.